0: Okay, so in Antony and Cleopatra, one of the things we talked about in um, Macbeth is the moments in Antony and Cleopatra that overlap with um, moments in Macbeth. The way you can see just by reading Macbeth, um, the least that you can see is that Shakespeare is thinking about Antony and Cleopatra and thinking about some of the information. That he's amassing um, for some of the material he's amassing to write in, in *Cleopatra*. Um, *Antony and Cleopatra* is one of several Shakespearean tragedies that are about two people. Um, *Romeo and Juliet* would be um, the first of this series. That is a tragedy about a couple, where the couple is named in the title. Um, You also have Troilus and Cressida is another example of that, although Troilus and Cressida, um, based on um, Greek and and Roman, uh, excuse me, Greek and Trojan figures um, during the Trojan War, uh, is not quite the same sort of thing as Romeo and Juliet and Antony and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra is a play which um, is officially in the title about two people in a way that Macbeth isn't, Um, if Macbeth had been titled Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, um, you would be able to see a little bit more um, the parallels between them. But but probably um, the parallels are most useful by way of seeing the contrast between them. That is, um, the Macbeth and the way we're looking at Macbeth, we were looking at it as a play about the impossibility, the tragic impossibility of being able to hold on to anything. Um, The only thing you can hold on to is the future, Um, but only to the extent that it is the future and not the present, only to the extent that it's not something that you actually have, but something that you look forward to because it is in front of you and not where you are. Macbeth gets that very, very briefly in Macbeth. He gets it when the witches predict that he will become king. Once he is king, once his kingship is in the present, um, no matter how long he's king, that's only a series of syllables, of instance, of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Antony and Cleopatra takes the same view about the possibility of possessing time. Um, You can't possess time. Antony and Cleopatra is a play that also takes place over many years. Um, Shakespeare doesn't indicate this at all, but the history that he's reading, the history that he's using, the history that's well known, um, makes the events of the play take place over more than a decade. It doesn't feel that way, it doesn't have to feel that way, um, because as with Macbeth, as with Hamlet, as with King Lear, all that ever is the subject of the play is the present moment. Antony and Cleopatra, the characters, um, form a kind of contrast with the Macbeths as characters, in their attitude towards the same apprehension of time. That is, both Antony and Cleopatra on the one hand and the Macbeths on the other come to understand, do understand, and understand with very great um, lucidity that time is only the present moment. That, for the Macbeths, is a tragedy. That, for the Macbeths, is um, the... um, Grimmest lesson that life can teach you which is that there isn't a difference Let's say between the time when you're alive and the time when you are about to die because both those times are in the present Um, When they are present for Antony and Cleopatra It's not a grim discovery to discover that time is only in the present their attitude towards that fact (laughs) is entirely different, um, entirely invigorating. Um, And in Antony and Cleopatra, to go back to Hamlet, the idea that a man's life is no more than to say one, for Antony and Cleopatra, that's okay. Um, That means that if you're counting your life at the present moment, um, then you can make your life what you want it to be at the present moment. So they so Shakespeare, in writing these two plays simultaneously, and I think it's worth thinking of them. We don't know whether it's literally true, but he certainly wrote them around the same time. But in writing them more or less simultaneously, um, what he's doing is presenting us with um, two perspectives on the same question about time. And the perspective in, in Cleopatra, is in a way the victorious one Um, having admitted let's say the grimness of the volatility of time, the fact that that is grim and uncontrollable having admitted that in Macbeth in Antony and Cleopatra you get a sort of solution to that um, apprehension and a sort of solution to the problem that Macbeth Presents So again, what Macbeth also presents a solution to the problem, the solution that I was calling at the end of um, our last class, diamondization, the idea that nothing more can happen to you, nothing more can occur to you that can do you any harm. Um, That's, you could call it, a minimalist solution. It's a solution that Edgar thinks but is wrong to think that he's achieved at the beginning of Act 4 of King Lear, when he says, to be worst, the lowest and most dejected thing in fortune, stands still in Esperance, lives not in fear. The melancholy changes from the best, the worst returns to laughter. That is, Edgar, to, to put it somewhat less eloquently, Edgar has hit a point, or so he believes, in which he can suffer no more harm in which all vulnerability is gone because there is nothing left to be destroyed in him shakespeare is very interested in this hit bottom moment very interested in when a character hits bottom so that nothing le- there's nothing left that can harm that character. He sees that, as many people do, um, and as many people have, as a sort of tragic achievement. And that's what um, Lionel Abel calls diamondization, the moment when there's nothing left that can harm you. Um, A famous early example of that. Is especially if you've seen the Julie Taymor version of um, Titus Andronicus, the movie called Titus, which um, completely saves um, that almost unreadable play. Um, um, Anthony Hopkins plays Titus, and boy, do things go badly for him. Um, and... Uh, when he hits bottom, he's been ranting and raving and screaming and weeping and doing all sorts of things that is Titus, but also Anthony Hopkins. Um, but when he hits bottom, he gets one last piece of bad news and um, he laughs um, and the great a lot of a lot of um, critics, especially German critics, have written this moment Titus call it ha 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 is the most sublime moment in the whole of the Titus Andronicus. That's I'm translating from the German. Um, and um, yeah, it's Titus laughing. And his brother says, why are you laughing? Didn't you understand the news that was just brought you, how terrible it was? And um, Titus' response is, why, I have not another tear to shed. So the moment when there is no, when there is no more tears to be shed, when there's nothing left to lose, that's a moment of freedom. That's what diamondization is, according to Lionel Abel. It's when tragedy and freedom come together. When the moment of seeing that there is nothing left is the moment when you need fear nothing more. Shakespeare got interested in seeing what happens when that turns out not to be true. Um, To quote a line of the great 20th century critic Maurice Blanchot. Um, Blanchot says, defines the human being as the indestructible and what it means to be indestructible for earlier Shakespeare. Um, To some extent, all the way through to Macbeth, Um, but to some extent, this is something he's already... In King Lear turning away from, but what it means to be indestructible is no longer to have anything left to be destroyed. That is what Titus means when he laughs. And when Anthony Hopkins does it, it's worth the whole movie. I mean, he does an amazing um, performance in that movie. Um, the whole movie is amazing, but his laugh is really, really stunning. It's really, really wonderful. Um, It's very low-key and really wonderful. And there's no more tears to shed, nothing left that can be destroyed. Um, That's what Edgar says also at the beginning of Act 4 in King Lear, that um, nothing can happen to him because he's now hit bottom. And it's at that point that Gloucester comes in with his eyes gouged out, and Edgar suddenly realizes that he was wrong. And he says, who is it can say, I am at the worst? I am worse than ere I was, and worse I may be yet. That is, it turns out the lesson that King Lear is teaching, the lesson that Shakespeare is learning and um, and um, relaying in King Lear, is that the fantasy that you've hit Autumn, that a man's life is no more than to say one, that nothing now can happen to you because you have nothing left to lose. The fantasy that tragedy is a kind of freedom, Shakespeare now wants to say that is a fantasy, that there is no limit, and here's what Blanchot also says, that what Indestructible means in the formula, he calls it a formula, that humans are indestructible. What indestructible means is that there is no limit to how much we can be destroyed. That there is no, that, are, that, that we have infinite capacity to be destroyed still further. And that's what Lady Macbeth discovers, and to some extent, that's what King Lear is about. That is to say, Lear begins saying, I have nothing left to lose. I'm about to die. I give everything away. I keep next to nothing, only the name of king and a little bit of symbolic um, ornamentation I have almost nothing and I am ready to die because I'm at the very limits of everything. And it's at that place that he, where he believes that he has nothing left to lose that Shakespeare gets interested and says, no, you haven't even begun losing yet. The entire play is about how much he has to lose. Now, in a strange way, Um, In a a way that's not at all obvious, but I think um, if you see this, you see a lot about Shakespeare. In a strange way, this puts Lear in the same category as Lady Macbeth. They are both figures who believe that they have nothing left to lose and therefore have a kind of command over life and over themselves and over time Um, which comes from the fact that they have nothing to fear. And both of them are completely wrong. So when Lady Macbeth essentially does what Lear does in the I have given suck speech, when Lady Macbeth says, I am symbolically at least banishing the one child I might have who would be for me what Fleance is for Banquo, what Malcolm and Donald are for Duncan. At that moment, what she is doing is she's making schematically at a kind uh, at, at, at a completely stripped down and skeletal level, she's making the same claim that Lear is making in Act One of King Lear. The comparison of Lady Macbeth to King Lear is in no way an obvious one, Um, but if you see that, you see a lot about what's on Shakespeare's mind. Um, What you could then say is that Shakespeare, really, from Hamlet on, um, possibly earlier, but certainly from Hamlet on, Shakespeare is trying to think of a way to write tragedy um, Which doesn't take the more classical form of the idea that you can get to a place that a character can get to a place where nothing matters anymore. Where the kind of healing or healing would be the wrong word but the kind of um, um, acceptance that a tragic character gets to is a minimalist acceptance. Macbeth is the greatest example of that utterly minimal acceptance. Um, I have nothing. I am weary even of the sun. Um, I get to grow weary of the sun. Lady Macbeth, she should have died hereafter. Um, now or then, what does it matter? Um, his warning to Macduff is simply, don't fight against me because you can't win. Um, But he doesn't care, Macbeth, whether he wins or loses. Nothing matters to him anymore. And tragic achievement, I'll just say this one more time, because Anthony Cleopatra is so different from this, although it stages um, the question of what tragic achievement should be. Um, But tragic achievement is achieving a place where you have no um, desire anymore, um, to object to your fate, it's not an embrace of fate. It's not an acceptance of fate. It's almost you could say emerging with fate, becoming your own fate itself, whatever that fate is. That's Edgar again, embracing the insubstantial air. That could be um, in that could be in a sense the slogan for this sort of tragic achievement. Thou insubstantial air that I embrace, the wretch that thou hast blown unto the worst owes nothing to thy blasts. Um, So to embrace the insubstantial air is not to think, oh no, it's only insubstantial air. It's a ghost. Um, If you know the Aeneid, you know that Aeneas tries to embrace Creusa that way but she's only a ghost. If you know the Iliad, um, you know that um, Achilles tries to embrace Patroclus that way, but they find that they're embracing phantoms. But Edgar isn't embracing a phantom. He's embracing the air whose nothingness, whose emptiness is exactly what he is embracing within it, the emptiness of any desire, the emptiness of any hope. And that for him is... It is an achievement, a completely empty achievement, but an achievement. And that's where he's wrong. He thought he'd achieve that and two lines later he discovers that there is no limit to how bad things can be. And that's Shakespeare is trying to write tragedy of a sort that is um, unprecedented in the history of literature, which is tragedy which is not self-limiting in the loss that it describes. Loss by its nature seems self-limiting. I'll, get, I'll give you one more example of this. This is a kind of, because you were away for two weeks and um, you probably had a good time, it's time to depress you again. Um, there's a line by the great contemporary poet, poet Jeffrey Hill Um who writes, um, actually in the voice of someone else, but um, he begins with a kind of proverb, one cannot lose what one does not possess. And then having quoted that proverb, he writes, so much for that abrasive gem, I can lose what I want. I want you. So the idea that you can't lose what you don't possess seems to set a limit on how far you can lose anything. But Shakespeare wants to know what happens when you go beyond that limit, when it turns out you can lose more than you ever possessed, when there's no limit to how much you can lose. So having thought that through in Lear and in Macbeth, Shakespeare and Cleopatra is now going in a completely different um, direction, which is so. How? What sort of affirmation? If it's not the affirmation of nothingness, which is what tragedy usually gives you, what sort of affirmation is available in a world where loss can be endless? That's the question that Shakespeare wants to ask in Antony and Cleopatra. I'm I'm setting this out in a a somewhat uh, complex and and maybe even slightly opaque way, but this is what I'll want us to be thinking about as we go through Antony and Cleopatra. Um, So let me just put it one more way. The great 20th century philosopher Gilles Deleuze um, says um, um, of literature, and this is actually in an essay on Nietzsche, um, who was, for Deleuze, one of Nietzsche's most famous ideas was the idea of amor fati, the love of fate, embracing your own fate. Um, Deleuze, in the sense on Nietzsche, says that an indescribable joy always rushes out to us from the great books, even if what they speak of is tragedy, disaster, misery, horror. So the idea that somehow the representation of disaster when handled by tragedy, the great question in history is why does tragedy give pleasure in literary history? Why do people take pleasure seeing misery? And the wrong answer is because we're sadists. Um, That's simply not true. It's hard to get tragedy to give pleasure, but the great tragedies do, the great books do. So the question from the time of the Greeks on is why does tragedy give pleasure? Why did the great tragedies give pleasure? And the answer most of the time has been because they offer us a way to see how to be free in a world in which we are oppressed by fate and time and uncertainty and change and the inevitability of death. Tragedy still offers us a way to think about how to be free. And what is the way the tragedy offers us um, to think about how to be free? It's the freedom of no longer wanting anything but what you will inevitably get. It's the freedom that comes from embracing the fact that you can't possess anything and needn't try. You are free of your own desire to possess, free in some sense then of your own desire, and that is more or less what Aristotle meant by catharsis, by purgation by getting rid of everything. Purgation in Aristotle. People all know the term catharsis, Um, so since not everyone is nodding, I'll just say that Aristotle defines tragedy as a representation of action which causes either pity or terror and which ends with the purgation of those emotions. Um, and the word he uses, the, the Greek word is catharsis, um, and, and that word is, is often simply um, kept in English as catharsis, um, but if it's translated, it's translated as purgation, and it has the meaning of purgation in Greek as in English um, that it has in medicine. That is, um, it is the evacuation, the emptying out of everything um, that was within you, in the case of tragedy of the emotions of pity or of terror. Um, and so you are left, to quote Milton, who ends the one tragedy he wrote with a line um, recollecting Aristotle, you are left at the end of such a tragedy, calm of mind, all passion spent. All, it's all gone. And that's the freedom the tragedy offers you. Now, what Shakespeare wants to do—that's—you could say that—that's what we have in Hamlet. A man's life is no more than to say one. Since no man of aught he leaves knows aught, what is it to leave betimes? Let thee, be. since you know nothing of everything you're leaving behind you, what do you care? Um, to achieve that. Idea to achieve that point, that's tragic achievement, but not for later Shakespeare. In Antony and Cleopatra, we get kind of the um, mirror image, photographic negative, and to total opposite of what we saw in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is to say A Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy despite the tragic framework that we know, which is to say that um, Hippolyta will die being mortal of the boy that she is about to conceive the night that the play ends, Um, and that boy will have a tragic life and bring great tragedy to his father Theseus, even now as we're watching in bed with Hippolyta. We know that, but what the play says is don't privilege the future over the present. The future doesn't matter more than the present. The play ends in a comic moment and says, here is where we are, in this comic moment, not in the tragic future, but in the comic present. So the idea that we're in the comic present, that's the achievement of comedy in Shakespeare, which is to get you to be here now when things are good. And even admitting with the full force of such an admission that things will be bad later. What the comic moment says is, all that there is is present mirth. All that There is, therefore, is present laughter. So stay here in the present. Don't go to the future. The tragic version of that is, but you can't stay here in the present. You can party, but when you go to bed, you'll be killed. And your guards will be killed. And then you you can become king, and that can be great, except that all when you have a party as king, what you will be reminded of is the emptiness of the present moment. Banquo's empty chair filled only by a ghost. Filled by a ghost that in one way or another, you are going to become yourself. So so comedy and tragedy in Shakespeare are about the present moment, and tragedy, you could say, the great tragedies in Shakespeare feel as though they are the defeat of the possibility of present mirth through the discovery that the present is empty and yet it's all you have. Hamlet tries to combine those two things in the idea that a man's life is no more than to say one. Um, and And he more or less successfully does so. Um, He no longer worries about the past. He no longer worries about the future. He embraces his fate, and that is liberation for Hamlet. But it's not like marrying Ophelia. If Hamlet were a comedy, that's how that would end. Um, You would get the great happy ending of A Midsummer Night's Dream, but you don't. Um, In Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare makes an extraordinary innovation, which is to combine comedy and tragedy and to write tragedy under what is essentially a comic mode and with an ending which gives you something like the ending of comedy. Despite the fact that it's absolutely tragedy, it ends with the death of the people we care about most Um, We should be as unhappy about those deaths as of the death of anyone in Shakespeare, more unhappy about the death of Antony than about the death of Hamlet, more unhappy about the death of Cleopatra than about the death of Lear or of Cordelia. Um, They are Shakespeare's in some way, they're certainly Shakespeare's greatest couple But by being Shakespeare's couple, there's a way that that makes them Shakespeare's greatest characters. Because unlike Shakespeare's other great tragic characters, they are not alone. But they have a dimension in their lives that we've only seen partially in the other great tragic characters, which is the commitments that they have to others. Again, in Lear, Shakespeare shows some of what he's going to develop in in Cleopatra by showing the relationship of Lear to Kent, of Lear to the Fool, of Cordelia to Lear, of Edgar to Gloucester. Um, What makes Gloucester and Edgar and Lear and Cordelia as great as they are is partly that they have these other people, that they are not entirely self-absorbed, that they are aware of others. So that one of Lear's most redeeming moments is the moment when after storming all alone on the heath, he realizes he's not all alone. Who is with him? Um, Kent asks the gentleman. And the gentleman replies, none but his fool, and the fool is there. And then Lear's wits come back to him. And he says to the fool, art thou cold, boy? I am cold myself. And then it's because the fool is there that Lear says, let's go in and take shelter. He does it for the fool. And that's really important to our sense of him. He's not the only unhappy person in the world. He knows of the existence of others, and knowing of the existence of others is necessary for a full and fully human tragic figure. Comic characters know of each other's existence because they live in each other's existence. The threat of tragedy is always the threat of pure solitary isolation. That's what demonization is is when all you are is yourself with no friends, but only mouth honor and breath. Macbeth loses everyone. It's not that he loses everything. Who cares? He loses everyone in a way that Richard didn't, for example. Richard, you will recall, has his soliloquy in prison. Which begins, I've been considering how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world, and for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. So, Richard, that early tragic figure, is reduced to tragic solitude. That's what happens to tragic figures, they're reduced to solitude. That's what Shakespeare's aim in writing his early tragedies is, is to show a figure reduced to solitude. But, Rick, but Richard, nevertheless, still has friends. Until the end, he has friends. In Merle, if, no, if in no one else. But also in um, Bolingbroke himself. Hamlet has friends. Solitary as he believes himself to be, Horatio, is always there for him, and that's something that he comes to recognize. Macbeth is the single example of a tragic figure who is entirely friendless at the end of the play. It's as though Satan, um, who is the last person he talks to, is simply underscoring how there is no one there for him. Who had been there for him? Banquo and Lady Macbeth. And both of them are gone. And the fact that they're gone is crucial. Who else in Shakespeare loses friends like that? Other people have friends executed, as Richard does. That's what Bolingbroke's aim is when he executes Bushy and Baggett and Green and says, I'm doing it because of what you've done to Richard, but what he's doing is actually taking them away from Richard. But it is only Macbeth who dies entirely friendless, and that is is something that Shakespeare is making extremely prominent in the play, the friendlessness with which he dies. Um, The lesson, again, to take from that is that to be fully human, you need friends. Those last two words being, of course, a quotation from Richard II. To be fully human, you need friends. And therefore, there's something about tragedy. Now let me just sum up what I've been saying. There's something about tragedy which strangely seems to cut against the fully human. That is, what what tragedy does is it shows you a figure more and more isolated, but in showing you a figure more and more isolated, it's showing you a figure less and less human because the more isolated you are, The less human you are. That's why Edgar describes the isolated version of himself after Gloucester thinks he's jumped as a monster. Because Edgar has been completely isolated in a way that the Fool and Lear have not. Edgar has not had a Fool, Edgar has not had a Kent to help him. And that turned him into a monster. But when, and this is Shakespeare's first thinking about the issues that are gonna come a cropper in in Cleopatra, when Edgar says, no, I'm even worse than the figure of absolute isolation that I began this scene in because there's my father. It turns out I can go even farther down the pit of unhappiness. That further descent is not a descent he has to do alone. He hits a point, which he thinks is hitting bottom, of isolation and freedom. And then he goes farther down still. Worse I may be yet. But when he goes farther down, There's a different kind of tragic recovery open to him, not one which says there's nothing left to worry about, but one which says things can get worse still. But there's a recovery of human relationship. Here's my father. Here's my father thinking about me. In the last night's storm, I such a fellow saw who made me think a man, a worm. My son came then into my mind, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. I have heard more since. So things have gotten worse. I have heard more since. And hang on, by the way, to that word since. Really remember it, because we're going to come back to Shakespeare's use of since, or Antony's use of since in Antony and Cleopatra. Um, if you were to get a quiz on Antony and Cleopatra where you were simply supposed to identify the quotation, and the quotation were the word since, you would know it was Antony. Um, I have heard more since, says Gloucester. And that since is things are worse, and yet my mind now is friend's with him. Achieved isolation, achieved emptiness, achieved tragic freedom comes at the expense, almost inevitably comes at the expense of rejection of all others. I have no time for you. I am completely miserable. I have no desire to interact with you. You would only give me false hope. That's what a certain kind of tragic achievement Aims at. It's a sort of repudiation of everything and everyone. But what Shakespeare is interested in is what happens when you can get to a friendship which is not based on hope or on a sense of what is this person good for for me? How much does she love me? Um, who shall I say, who shall we say doth love us most? But when the relationship to the other can be a place where you are fully human no matter how bad things are. And that's what Lear and Cordelia want at the end. will away to prison and be like birds in a cage. Um, it's not what they get, but it's still astonishing in King Lear that the great tragedy of Lear is not his death. His last words are, pray you undo this button, at least in the quarto. Um, not great tragic last words. You'll see that Cleopatra's last words are very similar. She's interrupted in the middle of a sentence. She tries to make her last words, Anyone can guess? Can anyone guess what she wants her last words to be? If you well some of you've read it because you're ready for the quiz, right? Okay, question 1. What did Cleopatra want her last words to be? Is your hand up? It was like Anthony, my Anthony, oh Anthony. She really she staged everything so her last words would be Anthony, oh Anthony. And so she says it and then she's still alive. <laughs> And she says, what's going on? And in the middle of saying what's going on, what she actually says is, what should I stay? And then she dies on the word stay, not on the word Antony. She's wondering why she hasn't died yet. She had her great tragic scene all set up. And she dies like she mistimes it by about a second and a half. Um, And Shakespeare is very explicit about this. Um, it's not only how that last scene works, but as you'll see, there's a previous scene where he says, pay attention to her death scene. um, Because here's how she likes to think of her death scene. Um, But King Lear's death scene is similar. It's, there's Cordelia, and then, oh, pray you undo this button, and then, look there, look there, but not, oh, Cordelia! Which is what he wants his last words to be. Um, Or if he's going to have last words, that's what he wants them to be, but only either pray you undo this button or look there, look there. But the lesson of that is that both Lear and Cleopatra are unhappy not over their own deaths, but over the death of the person that they love, the moment of tragedy, is the moment where they're focused not on themselves and not on their final reduction to the purity of their own subjectivity, but the moment when they're looking at another and finding the tragedy in the death of the other person, not in their own death. Is your hand up? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, there's a, the, I, I just read a really interesting um, uh, review of a book on Augustine and the Jews. And um, it's, it's, I, to my surprise, it's a book that demonstrates um, uh, that Augustine, um, in many ways, not a pleasant person, um, was extraordinary in his view of the Jews and, and the, the respect that as a bishop of the Catholic Church, he gave to um, the Jews as a people, as a religion, as a group. Um, And Augustine explicitly said, and I didn't know this, um, in fact, if I I recall correctly, this may only have been discovered recently, but I'm not sure about that, but Augustine explicitly said that um, forcing Jews to convert is equivalent to murder, um, which is what Shylock says um, at the end of Act Four of The Merchant of Venice. That is, no, if you do that to me, you may as well just execute me. Um, Augustine said the same thing. Yeah, it's a removal of all commitments. And again, the interesting thing in The Merchant of Venice, we didn't really talk about this, but the interesting thing in The Merchant of Venice, um, and I think it is worth talking about, is um, Shylock, you'll recall, um, justifies what he's doing by comparing himself to Jacob. Um, And notice that we've also compared Edgar to Jacob in talking about King Lear. I think that Jacob and Esau's story is something that's very much on Shakespeare's mind um, from first to last. Um, But he compares himself to Jacob and how Jacob uh, managed to um, uh, deal profitably with his father-in-law Laban or Laban. Um, but the Jacob story is one in which Jacob first um, tries to marry Rachel, but who gets snuck in instead? Leah, Rachel's sister, um, because Laban wants to see her well-married. And so then he has to work another seven years um, before he can marry Rachel. Um, and Shala compares himself to Jacob when he's talking to um, Antonio, Then when we hear that Jessica has stolen, has sold the ring that he has stolen, that she has stolen from him, excuse me, that she's stolen from him, um, Shylock has one of those great moving moments when he says, it was my turquoise. I had it of my Leia. I would not have sold it for a wilderness of monkeys. But there is something really almost Fiddler on the Roof-esque about that moment, which is, Sherlock gets to marry once, and he married Leah. Um, he doesn't also get to marry Rachel. He married Leah. And what did he do with his marriage to Leah? Well, he loved her. And anything that belonged to her is of more than monetary value to him. He's the first person to say that the ring really matters. He demonstrates what it means for a ring to matter as a ring, and it matters because it's the emptiness when all you have left is the ring, is the emptiness of the missing other person. And that's another way, if you, if you ask, or if you're directing Merchant of Venice, I think that if you could find some way of making Shylock's forced conversion into something like giving up his loyalty to Leia, you would get a sense of why he's against it. So, yeah, that's I appreciate your question, and that that's how I would answer it. Okay, back to Antony and Cleopatra now. All of this is context for or background against which Antony and Cleopatra, the play, will... Um, Um, show itself very vividly. So again, in Ant and Cleopatra, we're seeing a tragedy that has almost, without ever giving up its tragic mode, has almost the kind of triumph that comedy has. Um, In The Winter's Tale, which is the last play we're looking at, as I mentioned before, The Winter's Tale can be described as a tragic comedy. That, by the way, as you know from Hamlet, is a phrase that Shakespeare himself uses. Um, The Winter's Tale is a play that ends happily and yet is shot through with melancholy. Antony and Cleopatra is a play that ends inevitably disastrously and yet is shot through with joy. And um, in that sense also it's worthwhile both seeing Antony and Cleopatra as a a massive and amazing um, uh, opposite to what Shakespeare has been doing in his tragedies before, with Macbeth as the tragedy that he's writing against, even as he writes it. And then you can see The Winter's Tale as a different version of this kind of opposition um, in its mixture. It's a different kind of mixture of tragedy and comedy but the two last plays we'll be doing are both mixtures of tragedy and comedy. So let's go to the very beginning, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 1 of Ant and Cleopatra. If you have the Norton, it's page 2644. Um, If I were to express petty resentment about the second edition of the Norton, eh, I won't. Um, And what we have are um, two Romans in Alexandria, talking. And what we, again, have is Cleopatra begins in a way that Shakespeare has taken to beginning tragedies, which is to have minor characters in conversation, relatively minor characters in conversation, um, about what the situation is. So you'll recall that King Lear begins with Gloucester and Kent and Edmund present, but Gloucester and Kent in conversation. You'll recall that Hamlet begins with um, Bernardo and Francesco meeting each other on the watch. We don't have the great figures entering (laughs) to start the play, but we have people talking about them and setting the scene. So enter Demetrius and Philo, um, and Philo is in the midst of a conversation with Demetrius saying, nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. Um, So you can imagine if you walk it back one line, um, you could say something like, is there anyone crazier than Cleopatra? And Philo is saying, no, but look at Antony. Um, he's even worse. Or it could be, boy, Antony's been doing a lot of weird things lately, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. Um, hang on to the word dotage, which is a word that's going to appear several times in the play. Um, Anthony will use it of himself. Um, I must from this enchanting queen break off, he says, or lose myself in dotage. It's a word we've seen earlier in A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's not a word Shakespeare uses often, by the way, Um, but we've seen it earlier in A Midsummer Night's Dream when Titania says to Bottom, how I love thee, how I dote on thee. Um, It's a word of sort of unthinking love, unthinking infatuation. Um, It's a word um, that's negative in connotation. Um, It will also mean, as you know, senility. When someone is in their dotage, um, it means that um, they're they're no longer in their right minds. Um, Nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. And hang on to the idea of overflowing the measure. Here, as the footnote usefully tells you, what it means is goes beyond suitable bounds, Um, as though there are suitable bounds to dotage. Well, you know, I dote on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, but the other four days of the week, I'm very careful not to dote. Um, Dotage, in a way, by its nature, overflows the measure, but the first thing to see is that the Romans always talk in terms of measure that Rome was famous for that. Rome was famous for the rationality, at least at this point. Um, Things got a little excessive later. Um, But Rome was famous for the rational principles in which it handled its military affairs and its architectural affairs and its engineering affairs. Um, the joke about Rome, this is, you have to be the kind of person who appreciates a, um, rather recherche joke, but the joke about Rome told in, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses is that the Greeks had produced Homer and Aeschylus and, um, and democracy and, um, the Parthenon and the Mass of Agamemnon and everything else. And then the Romans came and they said to one another, Um, upon one of the hills. It is meet that we should be here. Let us construct a water closet. Um, See, enough of you are laughing that I don't feel bad about having told that joke. Good. Um, So that's what the Romans did, is um, plumbing was a really major Roman achievement. And it is a major achievement. Plumbing is more important than all the tragedies in the world. Um, But it's not the most romantic of things yeah. Yes, and we're just about to get to that. That's absolutely right. So this Donovan General overflows the measure. Um, Those, his goodly eyes that or the files and musters of the war, have glowed like plated Mars. So he used to be a man from Mars. Do you guys know that ex-bestseller, men are from Mars, women are from Venus? Um, so he used to be a man from Mars, not like in... Uh, that terrible TV show from a year ago, um, Life on Mars. Um, Those as goodly eyes that the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars. Now bend, now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. So he used to look only at battles, but now he's looking at what? At Cleopatra's dark skin. Um, that's what he's interested in. Um, notice, because it's going to be important thematically in the play, how much of this play is about what Antony is looking at. Um, We have our attention drawn to what Antony is looking at over and over in this play, and in important contexts. His captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights hath burst the buckles on his breast, reneges all temper and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's Lust, So he used to be um, able to use his extreme physical um, power and, um, and um, ability in battle. But now, instead of panting in battle, he pants in sex. And he blows upon Cleopatra and does more than that um, in order to cool her lust. As you'll see later, they also like cross-dressing. They like to have sex after cross-dressing. Um which is which um, is interesting to the people who discuss it. Um, the word gypsy there is a word that will come up later. Um, our word gypsy actually comes from um, a mis, uh, a mistaken idea. That the gypsies or the Romani were from Egypt. Um, it's now known that they're actually um, they're, they, their origin was Indian. Um, but in Shakespeare's day, it was thought they were Egyptian, and so the word gypsy is just short for Egyptian. Um, if, you've, if anyone's read Philip Pullman, um, the Egyptians in Philip Pullman are Lyra's World's version of gypsies. Um, they're just called Egyptians in, um, in the Golden Compass. Um, Later, Antony will say that she hath, like a right gypsy, at fast and loose beguiled me to the very heart of loss. Hang on to that amazing phrase, the very heart of loss. So um, that's Philo talking to Demetrius, and then enter Antony Cleopatra, her ladies. Um, the train with eunuchs fanning her. I take you all know what a eunuch is. Um, You should because Cleopatra will talk about the experience. She wonders about what kind of experience eunuchs have. And the eunuch Martian tells her um, what kind of experience he has as a eunuch. Um, This stage direction should be compared to the stage direction in which Lear enters with his train after Gloucester and Edmund and Kent have been talking. And then Philo says, there they are. Look where they come. Take but good note and you shall see in him the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. So here we get the framing of the narrative. Look at what this story is about. And Shakespeare is doing something we've seen him do before, which is to misdirect us in the opening moments. And the misdirection here is Philo and Demetrius are almost like a chorus, saying here is the play of Antony's disastrous mistakes and mischoices, behold and see. And we in the audience too are beholding and seeing. And what we here today should behold and see is that Shakespeare is doing something we've seen him do before, which is he's assigning himself a task which he immediately makes more difficult by introducing it in the hardest way possible. He's like a Houdini who says, okay, um, before you put this straitjacket on um, that I'm going to escape from underwater, handcuff me first, so it'll be even more impressive. So here we're getting um, something that is really not as hard as King Lear, but still hard to overcome, which is acuing on the basis of characters who only exist to cue us. A cueing of the audience on how to understand what we're about to see. And what we're about to see is someone who was once a great general, now just reduced to mush by Cleopatra. And we do see it. Their account of what we're about to see is, by their lights, accurate. And what Shakespeare is essentially doing is he's setting a challenge for himself which is to give us Antony in the worst possible light and to make us feel at the end that Antony and Cleopatra were worth more than Rome to Antony. That Cleopatra, the Cleopatra's tears as he himself puts it are worth more to him than all of Rome. All of this confirms what Philo and Demetrius say. Um, What isn't confirmed is their judgment. So let's go on. Cleopatra speaking says, if it be love indeed, tell me how much? Where have we seen that question before? It's the beginning of King Lear. Whom shall we say doth love us most? So yeah, you're right, Miranda. The very first question is, so how much is it exactly that you love me? Um, the question that we saw in King Lear. Um, Beyond all manner of so much, I love you. I find that my sister names my very deed of love only she comes too short. And you, Cordelia, what can you say to draw a third more ample than your sisters? How much is it? Hamlet will cry to Laertes 40,000 bro- I loved Ophelia, 40,000 brothers could not with all their quantity of love make up my sum so Shakespeare likes moments when people demand some quantification of love and Antony um, immediately says not oh I love you more than words can wield the wet matter dearer than eyesight space and liberty beyond what can be valued rich or rare I'm just making this up as I go along Um, not Um, what he says is simply there's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Hang on to the word beggar in this play also. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. If you can say how much, it's a trivial amount. Numbers are cheap. Love that can be counted is beggary. Um, Cleopatra, I'll say to born how far to be beloved. That is, okay, I, what I will do is I'll draw a line and see if he can make love up to that line. And Anthony says, then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. If you want to know how far I love you, you couldn't do it in this world. You'd have to find out new heaven, new earth. Um, immediately, to make clear what the contrast is, enter a messenger. This Everything happens very rapidly now. News, my good Lord, from Rome, of all places. Antony's response is simply grates me the sum. That is, um, I find this very unpleasant. It's almost like scratches blackboard me. It's, um, it's, a, it's grating to hear you say there's, there's news from Rome. Give me the sum. So Cleopatra has asked for a sum of love, and Antony says no. Um, news from Rome, that can be summed up very quickly. So Rome is the place of sums. And um, Egypt is the place of um, uncapturable amounts of overflowing the measure. Greats me, the sum. And then Cleopatra slows it down. Nay, hear them, Antony. Don't just get the, the tweet version of the news. Nay, hear them, Antony. Fulvia, perchance, is angry. Fulvia, if you don't know, we're about to find out um, and find out very clearly, is Antony's wife, interestingly enough. Fulvia, perchance, is angry. Or who knows if the scare spirited Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you. The scarce-spirited Caesar there being Octavius Caesar, Julius Caesar's adopted son, um, who is one of the other triple pillars of the world. And he, Antony is um, in his early 40s at the time. Um, Caesar is 22. Um, or who knows if the scarce bearded Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you and what does what Caesar's mandates look like? Do this or this. Take in that kingdom and enfranchise that. Perform it or else we damn thee. So here's your chore for the day. Um, take in that kingdom. Let that kingdom free. Um, hope and change and efficiency um, are Caesar's um, mode. Now, one thing to understand, by the way, is that Caesar is for Shakespeare and really for everyone, um, the, great politi- the outstandingly great political figure of the day. Um, On the one hand, he marks the end of Roman republicanism, but on the other hand, and this is what Shakespeare um, says at the end of the play, he brings in what he calls the time of universal peace, the Pax Romana. Um, What Caesar did politically, what Augustus Caesar did politically after his defeat of Antony and um, Pompey and um, after um, the engineering of Lepidus' ouster um Caesar brought in peace for the longest period in history. Um, in Western history, you had peace in the Western world, more or less universal peace, um, for 200 years. And it was um, Caesar who did it. And um, what the way he did it ultimately was by defeating Antony. So the political story that this play tells, is a story in which um, Caesar's victory and Antony's defeat is a good thing. Um, And there's no denial by Shakespeare or by the play that it's a good thing. Um, And what made it possible for Caesar to do this is um, that he was no drama Caesar. Um, That's why there there are no plays about him by Shakespeare and why the scenes in this play in which you find him, he's the Bolingbroke. Of this play, he's the silent figure. Um, so um, that's what he's going to do. And then Antony is surprised. How, my love? Um, because she's teasing him, and Antony is easy to tease. It's one of the things Cleopatra likes about him: is that he's easy to tease. How, my love? Perchance, um, nay, and most like. You must not stay here longer. Your dismission has come from Caesar. Therefore, hear it, Antony. Where's Fulvia's process, Caesars, I would say, both. Call in the messengers. That is, you're always so worried about what they're thinking about you. Just call them in and just see what it is you're supposed to do. And don't mind me. I'll just sit here in the dark in Egypt, um, taking drugs and having sex with whoever I want. Um, As I am Egypt's queen, thou blushest, Antony. So she knows she's hit home. As I am Egypt's queen, thou blushest, Antony. And that blood of vine is Caesar's homager. That is, you're blushing, so obviously you're worried about what Caesar thinks. Else, so thy cheek pays shame when shrill-tongued Fulvia scolds the messengers. So you have stuff that you have to do, and you just can't put it aside. Otherwise, you wouldn't be blushing. And Antony now gets it. Again, if this is performed right, and it's hard to perform right because you need two spectacular actors for Antony and Cleopatra. Um, You can't do what lots of Shakespearean productions do, which is make do with one spectacular actor who will carry all the interactions that he or she is involved in. You need two in Antony and Cleopatra. If it's performed right, um, Antony now comes up to Cleopatra and says, and here again I draw your attention um, to an important grammatical mode in Antony and Cleopatra. Something that will appear again and again, which is what's called the third-person imperative. Third-person imperatives are rare in English. Um, we don't actually think of them as existing. We think of imperatives as the second, as second-person forms. If I say um, "prepare for a quiz," that's a second-person imperative. Um, If I say let everyone prepare for a quiz, um, that's a third-person imperative, but it sounds stilted and archaic. And it also grammatically takes the form to modern ears, and by modern, I mean the last 500 years, of a second-person mode. That is the word let in um, let him die, um, which we'll sometimes say, God, let him die. Um, the word let there takes the form of a kind of prayer. Um, Either to those who might intervene to save his life, no, let him die, or to God, please, God, let this happen. Allow it to happen. Um, Because when you allow something to happen, it happens, you're God. Um, But when you say, for example, in um, a, in a capital execution, um, if the judge pronounces the sentence, let her be hanged by the neck until dead, um, what that doesn't mean is, permit it if she wants, it's okay, let her. She really wants to be hanged by the neck till dead, let her. Um, but the fact that it doesn't mean that shows that it's a third person imperative, that by expressing something, With let, sometimes in English, we can hear that it doesn't, that it's not addressed to someone who will obey your order, um, but it's addressed in the third person. It's a hard thing grammatically in English. Um, It's a little bit easier in French. um, When you say vive le roi, actually you get this in English also in long live the king. That's a third person imperative. Long live the king, um, or may, which you might translate from English into English as "May the king live a long time." Long live the king really gets the third person aspect of it, um, but it's as I say, it's rare in English. Not so rare in Antony and Cleopatra. So Antony now says, "Let Rome in Tiber melt, and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall." Um, let it all happen, not as in permitted all to happen, but to hell with Rome. Here is my space, here in Alexandria. Kingdoms are clay, if only Macbeth had known this from the start. Again, notice how this is a kind of tragic um, series of assertions, but not at all in a tragic mode. This, you could imagine any number of Shakespearean tragedies ending with someone saying, I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need, friends, subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Or all we own, I don't own a kingdom, all we own, nothing can we call our own but debts and the same model of the barren earth to serve as paste and cover to our bones. But Anthony is saying that at the very start kingdoms are clay, they're nothing. Our dung, dungy earth, dungy earth alike, <coughs> feeds beast as man. Um, none of this matters. And then he says, "There is nobility, though. The nobleness of life is to do thus, kissing her, as the footnote will tell you, when such a mutual pair and such a twain can do it. In which I bind the world on pain of punishment, or in which I bind on pain of punishment, the world to wheat." We stand up peerless. So what he's saying is the only thing that matters in life is this, kissing her, not the kind of talking heads David Byrne, when this kiss is over, it'll start all over again in in their song Heaven, but this moment is all that matters. For Macbeth, that moment was empty. For Antony, that moment is his kissing her. Um, When Cleopatra dies, she wishes to rush to heaven lest Anthony should spend that kiss on someone else, which she says, it is my heaven to have. All that heaven is, all that nobleness is for Anthony Cleopatra is the present moment given over to a present moment expression of love. I just want to um, point out um, what he says slightly further um, in his next speech. Okay, we, we stand up peerless. He says, Cleopatra, excellent falsehood. So it's not, oh, this is grand. It's, oh, this is fun. Which is all there is. Why did he marry Fulvia and not love her? I'll seem the fool I am not. Antony will be himself That is the fool that he is. And Antony gets it, but goes on, but stirred by Cleopatra. Now, for the love of love and her soft hours, let's not confound the time with conference harsh. There's not a minute of our lives should stretch without some pleasure now. Now, just notice that line, and then we'll stop. What he's saying is time is short we've hit the point where we have to make every minute count. So, because we're old by those standards, um, and so because we have to make every minute count, we can't waste a minute doing anything besides wasting time. That is all that's, we have so little time left that we have to waste every moment of it. Complete opposite of Richard, who said, I wasted time and now doth time waste me? Anthony is saying, time's wasting us, so we better waste time big time. Um, and that's what living in the present is meaning for him. Okay, remember quiz on Tuesday. Have a good weekend.